Okay, Joshua, Joshua 3. The text says, New American Standard Bible, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. It came about at the end of three days that the officers went through the midst of the camp and they commanded the people saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priest carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be a distance between you and it, a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders, wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall moreover command the priest who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, By this you shall know the living God is among you and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from each tribe, and it shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priest who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above shall stand up in one heap. So it came about when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan, the feet of the priest carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest. That the waters which were flowing from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city which is that is beside Zarethan. And those who were flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Okay. A couple of things I want to keep on the board um, and we can be filling in the verses. Was the phrase Ark of the covenant. 
I don't know if I told you how many times I found the phrase, uh, but I'm going to keep that quiet right now, and we're going to just look at each instance where we see that in 3 and 4. Maybe today only get to 3. Also, notice the emphasis on the Levites. Well, I should say it better. It says the priests who are Levites, actually in verse 3, is the priests carrying the ark. So there's a lot of emphasis on the ark, a lot of emphasis on the priests carrying the ark. And so just any time you see that, make a note of that mentally, and when we pause, we'll write in those verses which emphasize that. Now, what is the significance of all of that? We'll talk about that um, more, more in just a second. Something that also uh, is highlighted in these chapters, it's only kind of introduced at 3.12. It's not really followed up in what we just read, but in 3.12, now then take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man from each tribe. We're going to look at that a little bit. Now, when you think about the crossing of the Jordan, Israel is here uh, and they come to the Jordan River and the water dries up and Israel walks over on dry land. What event in Israel's history does this make you think about? Crossing the Red Sea. Okay, crossing of the Red Sea. Matter of fact, in chapter 4, 24, that comparison is beyond question. It's actually 4.23. But in 4.23, the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he did which he dried up before us until we crossed. So it looks back to the crossing of the sea. Now that's another category. I'm have so many categories I'm not going to have a board well. But the crossing, the crossing of the Jordan, I want you to think about ways that that compares to the crossing of the Red Sea. And, and, and you know, what are the really, you know, some of them may be subtle things in the text, but what are the connections between those events? By the way, let me also say this. When you think about the past, and this is an obvious comparison, when you think about the future, think about something that hasn't happened yet, the crossing of the Jordan, what does it foreshadow. This is an Old Testament event. I'm not talking about how it can foreshadow heaven, but we're going to make a point of that uh, Lord willing, sometime. But, but not today. Um, what event in the Old Testament do you see like this where the Jordan is dried up? Elisha? Yes. Elijah and Elisha. This is when Elijah was going to be taken up in 2 Kings 2. And you remember that they take the mantle of Elijah and they touch the Jordan and the waters divide. 
Now, I haven't made in my mind or in my notes a long list of connections between this event and that. But let's right now compare it to the past. Uh, maybe one day we get to study Second Kings 2 and we'll get to make those points. But anyway, you remember in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Joshua commanded the officers to pass through, to prepare provisions. Within three days, they're going to cross the Jordan to the land God is giving them. Then here in 3.1, Joshua rose early. It is apparently the time the Lord has spoken of. Uh, the officers came. At the end of the three days, they went through the camp. And when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priest carrying it, you shall set out from your place and go after it. So there we see the Ark of the Covenant. There we see the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And the text tells us, it says you're to keep a distance, verse 4, between you and it of 2,000 cubits. 2,000 cubits. How much? Well, Sarah, I keep trying to move to avoid you. I'm just going to come over here. <laughs> 2,000 cubits. But how much is that? That's half a mile, isn't it? That's a good ways. It's about half a mile, I think. About five minutes. Yeah, it's about five-eighths of a mile. I forget how long a mile is, to tell you the truth. So, so, but it's about uh, a half or five-eighths. The, the way that Bob said it with such precision, I thought, I thought five-eighths. You know, it's easier to say a half like Boyd did. I didn't, uh, I didn't do the math. Okay, okay, I was intimidating you there. So, so somewhere between a half and five-eighths. But anyway... The um, it's a good distance. What does that mean? What does it say? That's by the way. It says so that they can see the way before them. Right? Okay. Well, the ark represented God to them. Yes, the ark represented God. It represented God, and this is a certain reverence or awe at the presence of God, at God's holiness. Um, now, think about this. How does this compare to the crossing of the Red Sea? Now, understand, I'm not just trying to be too, too specific with the crossing of the Red Sea. I'm talking about all the events surrounding it. Okay? How does that compare? Okay, you'll all know this when I say it. But remember, they were told not to touch the mountain in Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, verses 12 and 13, if any man or animal touched the mountain... Uh, you were stoned or shot through, so, so you just didn't come close to the mountain because God was appearing on the mountain. And just as they had reverence and respect for God's presence 
Here, by not coming near the mountain, they do that same thing as they're moving the ark and they not come near the ark. Because the ark represents God's presence among the people. And even here, God is giving a visual sign of His holiness, of His awesomeness, which should have led them to to stand in awe of Him. Now, two, you think about those early chapters of the book of Numbers, which are sometimes difficult to read because he's listing where the tribes encamped around the tabernacle. And then he deals with what portions of the tabernacle the sons of Levi were to carry. But as he is giving that description, as he talks about the tribes and their marching and stuff, uh, he, he discusses who is to carry the Ark of the Covenant. And it is to be the the priest, the descendants of Aaron, and the family of Kohath. And you read about all of that in the moving of the ark and the priest carrying it in Numbers 4, verses 1 through 20. And so all of this is coming to play now. In verse 5, Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Consecrate yourself. Now, Anne, I didn't see your hand. You had a question? No. Um, just to me, there's another symbolism about the crossing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he says, you know, they're following the ark, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. I think that it was on purpose that he had them follow the ark and not Joshua into Jericho. And um, you know, the ark represented God's presence and it literally had his word in it. And to me, that makes, I think, the application for us is that that's yes. where our focus should always be, especially in, well, always, but to be especially mindful of that when we're making big decisions or mm-hmm. we're going yes. somewhere new. Yes. You know, in whatever way, physically yes. or you're taking a new direction or considering a new direction that it's always God and His Word that we should follow yes. into places we've never been before. Okay. That was another message He was sending them. Yes. And like, like you said, He does say you've not passed this way before, especially on new ground. You know, so, but, but always, like you say, Anne, that is a good warning. Always. And... Um, he makes a statement in 3.5, consecrate yourselves. Consecrate yourselves. Now, before God came down to the mountain, God says the same thing to Israel, doesn't he? What did their consecration of themselves involved in Exodus. What did that involve in the book of Exodus? Do you remember? Sarah? I was think, I'm thinking it's I don't want to say the usual but um, 
washing and then abstaining from sexual intercourse and I'm thinking there's got to be another one. Okay, wash your clothes and uh, abstain from sexual uh, relationships and <clears throat> there is another one <clears throat> and um, see you made me forget it Sarah <laughs> but uh, Exodus 19 10, 11, 10 and 11 um, consecrate yourselves, wash your garments, be ready on the third day. Um, well, I don't know if there is a third one. I don't know. Look at the text. Anytime I disagree with the text, y'all just go by the text, okay? But it's Exodus 19, 10 through 15. It talks about it. Now, we're, it is not specified here what consecrating themselves mean. It's not specified. It's probably pretty close to what it was there, if not the exact same thing, but, but it's not specified. But what you do see is the similarity between these cases. Just as God comes down to the mountain and they consecrate themselves, they prepare for His presence. The Hebrew word actually means to make yourself holy. And they consecrate themselves, they, they purify themselves, they make themselves holy. Uh, but uh, they're making themselves, of course, God can only do that in absolute sense. But my point is they had to prepare themselves to the presence of God. But again, just a comparison between that circumstance in uh, God appearing to them and the circumstance now. Brad? You're probably thinking that it says Moses consecrated them. Okay. Uh, Moses came down from the mountain and he, it says he consecrated them. So there may have been, I don't know if he's blessing them, praying, mm -hmm. saying a prayer or whatever, but it sounds like he was active in that. And it, it may be the third thing we were trying to think of. Could have just been not going near the mountain too. You know, like you said, Moses initiates that. But it may be just going toward the mountain and going toward the ark, a comparison we've already made. So, um, but, but, uh, but you're right, Brad. Uh, as Moses um, leads the people in that endeavor. But I want to tell you something else that, that um, thanks to a commentary uh, I was reading, made this point. The word that is used in Joshua 3.5, tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. The Lord will do wonders. That particular word is used to describe in Exodus 3.20, in Exodus 34.10, the plagues that God sent against Israel. And so just as God did wonders among those people in the days of Moses, God is about to do wonders among them. Now this is a word, uh, this word has been used frequently in the book of Psalms. For those of you who have been part of that class, uh, but, but it's, it is um, not the only word that's translated in this way. Uh, and in the New American Standard, it wasn't translated plagues or wonders in 3 uh, verse 20 of, of Exodus but uh, this is the same Hebrew word 
And so again, there are all kinds of parallels between what Moses has already experienced and what Joshua is leading the people to experience. And in verse 6, it says that he said to the priest, take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. I know I didn't give you enough time, but you should have called my attention to the fact that the Ark of the Covenant and the priests carrying the ark are mentioned again. And uh, the Bible tells us that um, it says, Now this, the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. So, He began to exalt Moses. Look over in chapter 4 verse 14. In 4 verse 14. On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. So they revered him just as they had revered Moses all the days of their life. The Lord through this series of events in 3-7... In 4.14, he is going to exalt Joshua. I'm going to exalt Joshua just like I exalted Moses. Now, I think that's part of the reason why Joshua is having the same kind of experiences that Moses had. That the people can see if they reflect on this, and I think some of them were, that there's a comparison between Moses' experience and Joshua's experience as leaders. But God says, I'm going to exalt you. Now, this particular word, which is used for exalt, this particular word, uh, it sometimes can mean just grew. For example, when the growth of Samuel is described in 1 Samuel 2, this word is used, gadol. And it can be to make great, or it can be to magnify. Matter of fact, in our Psalms class just this past week, this word was used. In Psalm 70, verse 4, the psalmist rejoices that when people see God's salvation, they will say, let the Lord be magnified. This is that word used there. The Lord is magnified. The Lord is exalted. So so often, this word is used of men exalting God. And here God says... I'm going to exalt you. I'm going to exalt you. Now, can you think of some other people that that word would be used of in the Old Testament? Who does God exalt? Who does God Who does God say something like that? I don't want to be so obvious, Sarah. David. Okay. He does, but I don't know if that word, I didn't find that word specifically used. But uh, when you go back early in Israel's history, who would you say? This is obvious as David. Abraham. Abraham. God says, I will make your name great. 
in Genesis 12 and verse 2. Now, Sarah, I may have missed something with David. It may be at times God says this. It may be in 2 Samuel 7 he did. Maybe. I have to look back. But I know he said it of Solomon. It is said of Solomon in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 25, in 2 Chronicles 1, verse 1, that the Lord made Solomon great. So certainly it refers to David's descendants, whether or not it is said of him specifically. But now think about this just a moment. It is usually man exalting God and man magnifying God. Why would God magnify or exalt an Abraham? Why would God exalt or magnify Abraham? Why would He exalt Solomon or Joshua? Well, what's the point? Um, they're representing him. They're representing him. I really believe this is an act of God's mercy and grace to clearly show the people this is who you're to listen to. This is the one I'm speaking through. And God doesn't exalt Abraham just for his own purposes. God exalts him so ultimately his name might be exalted so that he might be magnified. God exalts him to reach all nations. God exalts Solomon. There had been controversy for the throne we find in Samuel and Kings. But God magnifies Solomon to show that he has made him king and particularly for his work of building the temple. A building the temple. And so God does this for the purpose of exalting or honoring His name. If God exalts us for a moment, um, and usually for most of us that would be all that it would be, but if God does for a moment, be thankful and use that moment to point toward him let me make a tangent okay tell you sometimes when I have even when I have missed an entire sporting event when I haven't seen the game sometimes I like to listen to what they say after the game and I get so disappointed when some people just talk about how hard they worked and how much they've done. Nobody accomplishes anything without the blessing of God. And thank Him. And I've had some, even Christians that I respect, say, you mean God cares who wins the game? I'll tell you what God cares about. God cares about us giving Him thanks for all our accomplishments. Whether He cares about the outcome of the game or not, we know He cares about Him, us giving Him credit and honor. But the most likely people 
the most likely people in public life to mention God in a setting on television or something like that are athletes. And um, may they have the strength to stand in their moment of, of, um, of celebrity. But that was a tangent. Anything else that you see on the text, a question or idea that you all have? I just can't help but think how the same thing is happens to Jesus multiple times in the New Testament. Yes. That, you know, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Yes. Kind of Yes, exactly. God, God exalts him, and that exaltation or glory will involve the cross too, the cross and the resurrection. And of course, we can all tie this with the fact that we humble ourselves beside the Lord, that He will, you know, exalt us. He will make us great. Verse eight: You shall moreover command the priest who are carrying the ark of the covenant. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> you command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, you shall um, say, when you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. There's, there's several things we want to do with these passages. But this statement in verse 10, pretty powerful. By this you shall know the living God is among you, that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Now, some of those groups like Canaanite and Amorite are mentioned all the time. Some of the groups like the Girgashites are not mentioned often. But these exact seven nations are mentioned, not in the same order, but they're mentioned in Deuteronomy 7 verse 1. Same nations are mentioned here. Deuteronomy 7 1 adds a note adds a note that does not appear right here. What is said in Deuteronomy 7.1 about these seven nations? Greater and mightier. They're mightier and stronger, greater and mightier than you are. Doesn't say that here specifically. But they know that idea. They are greater and mightier than you are. And so... When God calls us to fight a battle, or when God called Israel to fight this battle against nations that were greater and mightier than they were, when God does this, as a result, of it, He gives them a lot of assurance that I am with you. And what's going to happen here, the purpose of the dividing of the Jordan, and when the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, we'll see in just a moment. When they step into the waters, those waters are going to separate. Now, verse 15 tells us something about the waters. What does 3.15 tell us about the waters at this specific moment? There's a lot of them. They were overflowing. Yeah, there's a lot of them. And the waters are overflowing. 
And, and so they come to the water and they step into the water and the water divides. The waters separate. And, and Joshua tells them one of the purposes of this. That was one of the questions we asked. But one of the purposes of this dividing of the Jordan is, is you will know the living God is among you. And how do you know that God is among you? How do you know that God's going to drive out these nations that you're going to be asked to do battle with? Nations that are mightier and stronger than you? You can look back and say, listen, we're at the Jordan and we had no way to cross. And the priest took the Ark of the Covenant they stepped into the water and the waters divided. The same God who did this, the living God, as He's called in verse 10, the living God who does this can just as surely give us victory over these nations that are stronger and mightier than us. Now this is, an, this is a disadvantage that some of you who are young have. But for those of, you who are, those of us who are older, we can look back at our life and often realize where we faced bigger problems and bigger difficulties and God has delivered us from them. And that can always be an assurance in any crisis of the moment. And so it was here that this is a lesson that God is giving them preemptively of the people. And verse 11 says, Behold the Ark of the Covenant... Well, there's one mention. The Ark of the Covenant, the text tells us in verse, um, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing ahead of you. Take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. And it shall come about when the souls of the priests who carry the Ark step into the water, the waters will be cut off. Uh, by the way, I don't think I think in order to keep our numbers correct I should mention that in 3.6 the ark was actually mentioned twice. So we've had five mentions of the ark of the covenant to this point and three mentions of the priest carrying the ark of the covenant. But there's what? Isn't there one in 13 that you just read? Yes, yes. Uh, verse 13, verse 13 also tells us about the, 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 the ark and the priest who carry the ark. Yes, thank you. Now, um, but Joshua tells them when they, stay, when they step into the water, um, the water's going to divide. I want to tell you Something I often miss in studying the Bible because sometimes it happens so fast you don't realize it's happened. There's a prophecy made and a prophecy fulfilled and it happens so quickly we miss it. Joshua 3.13 is the prophecy. And Joshua 3, verse 15 and 16, is the fulfillment of the prophecy. A prophecy doesn't have to wait and sit for hundreds of years 
to be fulfilled to be a prophecy. Sometimes it can refer to the near future. But uh, we talked the other day about Joshua's role as a prophet among the people. That, that um, he, he used to serve as a prophet. I want to keep a lot of things on the board, some money on space. But what do you see in this section that kind of highlights the fact that Joshua was a prophet besides what I just called attention to. Called attention to the fact he makes a prophecy. It is fulfilled. Um, any, any thoughts right there? I, I, that's not a question that I gave you to look up. And so you may not have had chance to think about it. Deborah? Uh, God talks to him. Okay. First of all, is the Lord speaks to Joshua. The Lord speaks to Joshua. And you see that in 378. We will find that in 4, 1 through 3. We will find that in, in 410. And we will find that in 4, 15 and 16. The Lord speaks to Joshua in 3 7. Now the Lord said to Joshua. Okay? Now, the second point, this is pretty logical. What was the next point for a prophet after the Lord speaks to him? What's the prophet going to do, Sarah? Speak to the people. He speaks to the people. And, and we see that, that Joshua <coughs> speaks to the people. He speaks to the people the words that God has spoken to him. And that's what happens in 3, 9 through 13. Did you notice how Joshua introduced this in 3, 9? Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. The Lord spoke to him in verses 7 and 8. And he calls the people and says, Listen to what... God has said. A prophet reveals God's word to the people. And after the Lord speaks to him in 4, 1 through 3, in 4, 4 and 5, he's going to relay that command to the people. The same thing in chapter 10, in chapter 4, verse 10, and in chapter 4, verse 17, after uh, that particular account, after the Lord spoke to him there. And as we just said, Joshua speaks of events and they come to pass. He speaks of events and they come to pass in 3.13 and in 3.15 and 16. What's the sign when, when Deuteronomy uh, places such emphasis on a prophet and then it says, if you wonder how to distinguish the true prophet from the false prophet, what's the sign? If it happens. <laughs> okay, yeah. If his word is fulfilled. If his word's not fulfilled, don't fear him. But if his word is fulfilled, here his word is fulfilled. This is part of God exalting him just as he exalted Moses. Um, let's look at this little section uh, in 4 verses 15 through 18. And I think we'll find all these selves. The Lord speaking to, or at least 
Uh, the Lord speaking to Joshua, Joshua speaking to the people, and then we find the people obey. The people obey. In 4.15, um, um, someone want to read uh, that? Um, Susie, are you looking at that 4.15 through 18? Okay. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests who carry the ark of the testimony that they come up from the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. It came about when the priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come up from the middle of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up to the dry ground, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and went over all its banks as before. Okay, very good. The Lord speaks to Joshua. And the Lord says to Joshua, Tell the priest to come up from the Jordan. So Joshua speaks to them. What does he tell them? He tells them exactly what God told him to say. Come up from the Jordan. Now that may not be the most dramatic uh, revelation that God's ever given. But, but he repeats what God said. God says tell them to come up from the Jordan. And the Bible tells them, he tells them come up from the Jordan. And then what do the people do? They come up from the middle of the Jordan. Sometimes... <coughs> Following God is that simple. God says it. We repeat it to others who seek to follow Him. And we do it. And you see that kind of thing over and over and over again in the Old Testament and the New. You see it in cases that you don't even think about. It's kind of like prophecy. Okay, you all know about the wee little man who climbed up in a tree because the Lord he wanted to see. What does Jesus say to Zacchaeus? He says, hurry and come down. The next verse says, Zacchaeus, hurry, he came down. What did he do? He did what the Lord told him to do. And you see that so often. And so quickly again, and I know it does happen quickly, that we might overlook it. We might forget it. But uh, back in our text in Joshua 3, anybody have a question? That, Brad? Um, I noticed in verse 8, um, he, God tells Joshua to tell the priests to, to, to go down into the river, um, and they do it as well. Um, so it just, uh, I mean, you see kind of the full cycle there. He tells the priest to go down. Yes. They go down in. He tells the priest to come up. Yes. They do. But it also is interesting that I usually think of the priest as having some kind of revelation from God. Mm -hmm. But I think you see here that yeah. um, Joshua is the one that has the revelation from God, and he's giving it to the priest. Yes. Yes, and sometimes it can be uh, that something was revealed to a priest. Uh, Eli, I can think of, uh, who is made both a priest and a prophet. But, but, but you're right. I mean, before he tells them to come out, he, tell them, he told them to go in. 
And he tells them to go in before he tells them that that's going to be, that that's going to work out, that the waters will all be uh, divided. But when they do step into the waters, the waters are cut off just as 15 and 16 stay. His prophecy is fulfilled. And in verse 17, um, verse 17 talks about, about uh, when the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood on dry ground in the middle of a Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Now I looked up the Hebrew word for dry ground. It's not used too often. But can you think, I don't, don't want to give any hints here, but can you think of any event in the Bible, where you read about the dry ground, <laughs> where would we, where could we maybe have seen that? Um, you do find this word, but for example, a couple of times in Genesis one, about the dry ground. But in Exodus fourteen twenty one, there's an emphasis that Israel crosses the Red Sea on dry ground. And here you see the same thing in Joshua 3 and verse 17. So many similarities between the crossing of the Jordan and the crossing of the Red Sea. Look, if you will, quickly in Psalm 114. Psalm 114. And I want you to see how closely tied the crossing of the sea and the crossing of the Jordan are. Um, uh, just to read the first five verses. We're especially going to focus on uh, verses, or the first six verses. We're especially going to focus on three and four though. Uh, Claudia, would you want to read that? One through six. When Israel went forth from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What, ail, what ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams? O hills like lambs? Tremble, O earth, before the Lord, before the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of water. Okay, very good, very good. You notice that verse 3 and verse 5 both mention the sea, I think in reference to the, uh, to the Red Sea, or Sea of Reeds there in Exodus 19. And it mentions too the Jordan. And, and so I think that these, these events are theologically one. And what does it lead people to do? It leads us all to stand in awe of God and to tremble before Him as verse 7 told us to do with Psalm 114. What other thoughts do you all have or questions do you all have about Joshua 3. Now Joshua 4 is going to be closely connected and we won't have time to really get into this but these 12 men that were introduced in 3 verse 12 
we're, are going to be focused on in four uh, in the first uh, eight to ten verses and the use of these men. There's going to be twelve men and there's going to be one from every tribe. God is trying to show that they're all sharing in this experience. They all have a part in this crossing of the Jordan. Uh, but we're going to see the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh play a prominent part. But um, And they're going to set up these stones. And, and, and the question is asked in the text, what do these stones mean? What do these stones mean? Mean, and I want you to continue to think about that question that we ask. Uh, what are when you read Joshua three and four and five one together? What is the purpose for the crossing of the Jordan? There are several things that are explicitly shown in this text to be God's purpose for them crossing to the Jordan. <coughs> Keep that question in mind. And Lord willing, we'll talk about it. Okay? Anything else? Lord willing, um, I'll be gone next Sunday and next Wednesday. And Paul is uh, going to teach. Maybe go over 5 and 6. Maybe he's got enough to uh, fix from chapters 1 through 4. Maybe you're just going to spend all your time undoing uh, what we've done, uh, the harm we've done. But uh, Lord willing, he will be teaching that uh, next week. But uh, thank you, and uh, God bless you, and you can just kind of sit quietly among yourselves until the... uh